and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. I believe the gifts that were given are these people, these functions. God gave us some apostles and some prophets. What's the blessing that we receive by God having given us some apostles and some prophets? The word. The revealing. Tell me, what would you know about Jesus if the apostles and the prophets had not revealed the gospel message? Just about nothing. Yeah. Virtually everything we know about Jesus is a result of the apostles and the prophets that God gave us. What a blessing he gave them to us. And he gave some evangelists. Now, what's the function of an evangelist? Well, is it a blessing that he's given us some evangelists? Have we learned some things from some evangelists that have have proclaimed the word, have explained it, and and, uh, exhorted us to follow it? I certainly have. I'm thankful to the Lord for having given some evangelists that I could learn from. And then he gave, and notice there's just one sum here. I think that's joining these two together in one class. Some pastors slash teachers. Now, I don't know how many of you have been blessed with being in churches that had qualified pastors slash teachers. Some of you have. How many of you have been in churches that had qualified pastors? Yeah, a few. Pastors are what we often call elders or bishops. And they're men that take the lead in the church and provide for the church spiritually and especially who teach and feed the flock. There are some pastors that have been great blessings in my life that have really shaped me and shepherded me. And if I'm of any value here, in part that's because of the work God has done through some pastors and really made a difference in my life. So even if you have not been blessed directly by being shepherded by good pastors, you've probably been blessed by some people who've been blessed by that. And God, then that's been a blessing to us. So those are are some of the gifts, gifts God has given to us. I'll pause. Do you have any questions or comments through verse 11? Well, why did God give us some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Well, he gave those gifts to us to equip the saints. Who are the saints? He gave them then to equip the Christians. Now, what was he equipping us for? The work of service. Now, who's supposed to be doing the work of service? The Christians that are equipped by the leaders that God gave his people. The leaders are not supposed to do all the work. They are supposed to equip us to do the work. Unfortunately, the situation in some churches is like a manager of a factory trying to operate all the machines 
while 50 employees come to the plant twice a week to hear him lecture on some phase of production. That's not exactly the way that the factory operates very efficiently, is it? And it's not the way God intends among his people. He intends the saints to do the work of serving. He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers to equip us to do the work of serving. I think that's a key point. We are inundated in the world with the idea of a professional class of clergy that do the work. And we pay them, and we're the audience. God's desire was that these evangelists and elders be equipping the Christians to do the work. Much better than that. Now, they're to work to serve for what goal? <coughs> Building up the body of Christ. That's the goal, that the body be built up. Now, have you, have any of you done any bodybuilding? Some of you look like you have. Yeah. And uh, I don't know much at all about bodybuilding. I know that's a surprise looking at me, but uh, I, I'm assuming that when you do bodybuilding, you have some kind of a goal. You're trying to lift so much, you're doing so many squats with so much whatever, or you're trying to build up your muscles to a certain diameter or something. I don't know. You can tell I don't know much about that. But I'm assuming you have some kind of a goal. Do you have some kind of a goal? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a bodybuilder. Okay. So, for a powerlifter, uh, the goal is uh, to lift as much weight as you possibly can. Okay. So yeah, exactly. You, you know what you're headed for. Now, our, as the body of Christ is being built up, the goal is that we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, you break that down. His goal is that all of us attain to something. We must not leave any behind. You know, all, all are to grow to be one in believing and knowing Christ and to grow to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I think the idea is that the body is to grow to be proportionate to the head. Right now, spiritually speaking, we have a, a, a big head and a very underdeveloped body. But we're to grow to fill out the body, to, to reach proportion to the head. In other words, we're to become like Christ. Until we do, the goal of the building up of the body has not yet been achieved. We're to keep building the body up until everybody becomes mature and reaches proportion to the stature of the fullness of Christ. we got some work to do. And sometimes we're content with too little. Well, we've got nice people at church that do nice things for each other, and they come together nicely occasionally to say some nice things about the Lord and to each other. 
and, and they are raising some nice families in a nice community. But we're not growing, we're not challenging ourselves to grow to become like Christ. It'd be like me, you know, as a you know, prospective bodybuilder saying, you know, really, I, I'm pretty good. You know, I don't really need much more. You know, I'm, I'm not really developing that. I'm not really doing any good if bodybuilding is the goal. Comments and thoughts through 13? And then 14. On the other hand, we're not to be children. We're to be mature with settled convictions. We're not to be easily swayed or manipulated or fall prey to the latest and greatest false teaching that comes along by unscrupulous false teachers and con men that make it sound good. Now, how are we going to avoid that? We're going to have to develop maturity and conviction in verse 13. We're going to have to, verse 15, speak the truth in love, grow up into the head there's too many crowding the nursery and not enough mature people with settled convictions based upon serious study and understanding of God's word and you know there's really no shortcut to growth and, and maturity in Christ we're going, it's only by the truth and it's only by coming to grow into Christ that we're not swayed so much. I remember the frustrations I felt as a young Christian. I, I, I had some opportunities both uh, to hear and to read some religious debates where people would take two different positions about a, about a biblical topic. The thing that was very frustrating to me about those debates is every time somebody got done speaking, they convinced me. <laughs> that was very frustrating because I'd go back and forth. That sounded really good. And then he'd say, oh, well, that's right. Then the other would say, oh, well, that's right. It's like, no, that's not right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do this. When am I ever going to learn something myself? And eventually I felt really good as I started being able to listen to them and one side would speak, and I'd be like, no, that's not true. You know, because of this, because of this, because but it took me a while. I had to grow. I had to mature. I had to study more. I had to get to the point where I knew something that I was able then to say, no, wait a minute. <laughs> that isn't right, and here's why it's not right. And so we're to grow and mature to develop a, a really solid understanding of the truth. And not just, you know, kind of a, um, a being able to parrot the creed. You know, there's a difference between having conviction based upon serious study and just knowing some doctrines we're supposed to believe and some people we're supposed to not listen to. You know, he wants serious spiritual growth. And the, the ultimate is verse 16. Every joint and each individual part growing to build up the body in love. That's a beautiful picture of what the Lord wants from his people. Comments and questions? I just love Paul's picture of using a body. Yeah, just 
one part of the body is not functioning properly, you know it. And I think we see in that that we need to see that each individual member is vital to how the body functions. Amen. So it's related to body, but there's no like typical steroid to get you that sharp No. No steroids allowed. <laughs> I guess steroids work in the physical body, but I think the spiritual steroids just uh, pump somebody up, but there's no real content, you know. And people try to do that all the time. What's the shortcut? Just, just tell me, you know, tell me a few pet things to believe and a few shortcuts to to know everything, and I don't want to have to put in the time and effort to really learn it. You know, I may have used this illustration before. I don't remember, but I was pretty impressed several years ago with a man who was at that time in the congregation where I'm at. He had been converted from the world. And, uh, you know, he'd really studied. He was not somebody who'd set the world on fire necessarily, although he wasn't dumb, but, but he wouldn't impress you particularly. But he'd studied. Now, I don't know that he'd read much of anything. You know, as far as, you know, literature and tracts and whatever. Or that he'd heard a whole lot. I taught him some, and he just studied. But I was amazed. There were a couple of uh, Mormons who came to his house, and he invited them in and agreed to study with them. And the amazing thing to me was, I, I, I went one day after they'd just been there, so he was ready to talk about the discussion. It was amazing. They had brought up various things, and he told me what he'd said. He's a really calm guy, very calm, not, a, not an argumentative kind of person, very, very sincere person. But he had, he told me some of the things they'd said and the things he'd said back. You know, I don't know that all of them were things that you'd have found in a little booklet that would have told you how to refute Mormonism. But they were excellent because he knew the book. And so, I mean, just point after point, he's like, well, but I showed him this. Or I asked him, well, how does that fit with that? It's like, well, you're right on, Jason. <laughs> That's exactly right. He knew the text. And so he knew how to refute Mormonism, even though I, I don't suppose he'd ever read anything on how to refute Mormonism. You know the book. You really know the book. Then you'll be able to refute the false teaching. If all you know is the slogans and the sayings and don't listen to this guy, listen to that guy, some new guy comes along and he teaches a little different, with a little different wrinkle, you'll have no idea. And, and pretty soon you're going to think he's the guy who's right and the other guy's the guy who's wrong or whatever because you don't really know. You don't have a mature conviction based upon the scriptures. So no, no steroids. <laughs> <laughs> other questions and comments?
that sometimes kids of Christians grew up with the shell. You know, they know a few things to say. They've heard the whatever, but they never knew it for themselves. And they're just empty. And they're vulnerable to virtually anything. Well, 17 to 24. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of the sea, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So, <clears throat> they are to change the way they walk. How are they not supposed to walk anymore? Like the Gentiles. Gentiles? So these guys were all Jews? Don't walk like Gentiles. What does he mean by Gentiles? Yeah, non-Christians. The terms, the term Gentile undergoes a transition during the New Testament writing and it comes to mean non-Christians the Christians are really a third race they're not Jew, they're not Gentile they're the Christians and uh, there's a number of passages in the New Testament, the epistles especially where Gentile is used for non-Christian whether they're Jew or Gentile ethnically the Gentiles are those who are not God's chosen people and so don't walk like the world walks. Well, how do they walk? It's interesting that for both the Gentiles and the Christians, the mind is treated first, then the conduct. Because the mind determines what we do. So they, they walk in the emptiness of their mind, and that sets up a chain reaction. They live, in verse 18, in a mental fog, darkened in their understanding. They're insensitive to God. You know, they're ignorant. Uh, they're excluded from his life. They have a hardened heart. They're, 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 they're like, um, have, they have consciences that don't have any feeling anymore. They're so atrophied by sin that, that there's no pain. There's no guilt. So, you know, they, they are empty in their thinking. They, their understanding is darkened. Then they become hardened. They become callous. And they just give themselves over to sensuality. They, they have no restraint. They just continually seek out ways of gratifying their sensual desires. That's pretty bad. Does that remind you of anybody you know? Isn't that really the tendency of the world even in our day? 
just eventually go farther and farther in to just almost animal behavior. It's amazing how nothing satisfies the worldly person. If it's material things they want, there's never enough. It's always more, doing things that are more and more crooked to get it. If it's sensual pleasure they want, it's incredible the grotesqueness of the kinds of things that people do, of the total lack of self-respect and respect for anybody else. That's the Gentiles' way. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. This is not the way it's to be for you. You are to lay aside your former manner of life. You're to change your whole way of life. Lay aside the old self. you got to change persons. You, you completely get, a, get away from that. You renew the spirit of your mind and put on the new self in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It seeks after God. So, that's what we're to do. We're to change our whole manner of life. We're to change our whole being and, and, and put on the new person that God gives us. Comments and thoughts? We can very easily allow ourselves to be as Gentiles if we are not willing to fill ourselves up with the Word of God. We don't understand the, the way God looks at the things that are happening out in the world, such as all, all the sin, and we don't see what God, how God views those things. We can be just like you should tell us, become callous. And follow the, the same things that they do. Yes. You know, when we put aside the old man, that's supposed to be gone. We're supposed to live a consistent new life. I mean, this is radical. We're, this is not some sort of, well, I'm trying to do a little bit better. This is like you, you completely change your whole outlook and then your whole pattern of behavior. That's what the Lord asks for. Other thoughts?
verse 15, we're to speak the truth in love. 21, just as the truth is in Jesus. And 24, the new self is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There is a connection between principle and practice. We follow the truth, therefore we must speak truth. Our behavior has to be consistent with the kind of person we become. So, lay aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. You've got to actually speak truth and get rid of falsehood. Now, the reason he gives is because we're members of one another. Think about this on a physical level. What if your eyes lied to your brain and said that there's not a wall you're about to run into? That could be a problem. Or if your brain lied to your finger that touched the hot stove and said that feels cold. And so forth and so on. You know, if, if your body members start lying to each other, what will happen? Absolutely. The body cannot function. It is based upon absolute honesty. And that's true in the spiritual body. What happens if I lie to you? Absolutely. How long do you lose trust for? Maybe forever. It's so difficult. You know, some of my closest friends that have lied to me, it is so hard because then I don't know when I can trust them. Then I have to interrogate them. And I still feel like, eh, I'm not sure. We just got to have an absolute commitment to truth. You know, my sample size is probably uh, not that large, and uh, my methods are not that scientific, but... It seems to me like, as I've been just trying to uh, work with, with people, that the number one issue for kids that are just getting to be of an age to be accountable before God is honesty. It's amazing to me how many relatively good kids that are 10 or 12 or 14 are dishonest. I think probably, you know, as parents, we've got to really teach that. But then it makes me wonder, I wonder how many of us are honest. Sometimes kids, it's a little easier to detect that. <laughs> they don't camouflage it as well. I mean, God's a God of truth. If we want to have any fellowship with God, we better be honest completely. And, uh, you know, so often, you know, we think we're honest and then stop and listen to what we say. How often are we skewing the truth and we're not just being absolutely honest with the facts? Well, 26 and 27, be angry and don't sin. You know, anger is like an acid that hurts the vessel it's stored in more than it does the uh, object of the anger. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't, don't be and wrathful, you know, deal with things. Uh, 
and, and get it over with. Don't give the devil an opportunity. And then 28, don't steal, but work. Now, we'd say that. Don't steal, work for your upkeep. But he says, don't steal, work for others. Go from being a thief to a philanthropist. You know, go from working, you know, taking from somebody to giving to somebody. God wants us to have a complete about face. How much do we think about others when it comes to working? When's the last time we got a better job or a raise and we thought, oh, that's so good. Now I can share with so-and-so. Now I can give more to this purpose. Or do we usually think, oh, now I can have this for me. Comments and questions through 28. I think we see how we really need to keep control of our emotions here. If we allow our emotions to get the best of us, we're giving the devil a foothold in our lives. You're exactly right. of the Lord 
Amen. Did you see the game last night? You know, what do you think about them, this and that and the other? You know, what in the world? You know, and, and it's, it's 98% things that we could talk with any non-Christian about. Why are we not using the time we spend together more, with more purpose to really build each other up and to try to encourage uh, spiritual living and thinking? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, the Lord is affected and hurt by our bad speaking. And then in 31 and 32, we've got to get rid of the bitterness and the wrath, the anger, the clamor, the slander, and the malice. You might compare verse 2. Those are quite contrasts, 2 and 3. And, uh, you know, be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving, just like God forgave you. What God has done for us in His mercy and patience and love is how we ought to treat one another. We ought to be just as forgiving as God has forgiven us. Just as compassionate as God has been gracious toward us. Comments and questions?
Okay. We are to be like God. And what did what did God, what did Jesus do? Absolutely. Self-sacrifice. Think about being like that. Giving himself up for us. Sacrificing for us. Serving us. That's our pattern. How are we with that? Look at 419. They've given themselves over to sensuality. Jesus gave himself up for us. What a difference. The self-indulgence versus the self-sacrifice. So that's a real challenge. Be like God in giving yourself as a sacrifice to serve. You think that's what Paul Joe saying in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ? No, maybe not. I think almost more there the idea he's not the master of his own life anymore. He's he's died to his own desires and just lets the Lord control him. Avoid self-indulgence and sensuality. In verse 3, immorality, impurity, greed. We ought to stay completely away from that garbage. Which is so prevalent around us. No filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting. I'm concerned that Christians cross that line too often into inappropriate conversation. You know, things that are semi-sexual that are sort of funny but that are really kind of funny in part because they're kind of inappropriate and just kind of indiscreet you know things that that make a joke out of God or out of things related to God we ought to treat the Lord with great respect and reverence there are some things that are kind of funny that are really just not the kind of things we ought to ever joke about or treat so lightly. You know, there are just some crude and and very gross kinds of things that, you know, are often kind of treated lightly and, you know, just kind of joked about. Those things aren't fitting. You know, we've got to be very cautious about those things. And, uh, the word coarse jesting sounds very much like the word giving thanks in the original. <laughs> Instead of coarse jesting, be giving thanks. You, know, you can use your mouth, your tongue, for something a whole lot more wholesome than some of those off-color kinds of things that are not very appropriate. So be really careful about that kind of stuff. Um, and you know he's very clear in verses 5 and 6 about the consequences you do these kind of things you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God but the wrath of God comes on you you know 
Paul doesn't leave, um, you know, any room for, uh, you know, discussion here. <laughs> you do this kind of stuff, you're out. You will be punished by God. Comments and questions through verse 6. Exactly. Well, I mean, you think about, you know, sometimes we feel socially pressured to kind of join in. But now what if they were talking about your best friend who had rescued you, who'd helped you, done all kinds of stuff for you, and you felt totally indebted to, and somebody started running them down. And the whole group started kind of picking on that person and laughing at them. Would you let that happen? Would you join them? You'd defend your friend. Say, wait a minute. He's not like that. You know, I know him. You know, you would not join in, not even by social pressure. We need to have more respect for God, more love for God. It's an outrage, some of the things people say. That ought to bother us, not be something we're pressured into joining. Girls, it's little girls, because you know, 
So he says, do not be partakers with them. In verse 7, don't partake in those dark, sinful activities. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. You know, don't share in it, don't go to it, don't rent it, don't read it. You know, don't have anything to do with the things that are of darkness. Our state is totally different from theirs. We're light, they're dark. And so our behavior is to fit the light to please God. Their darkness is empty and useless, and we've got to stay away from it. We're to to expose, not share in the deeds of darkness. And then he says something interesting in verse 12. It's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Of course, why do they do the things in secret? Yeah. You know, sin loves darkness so it can hide. It's amazing how many more sins are committed at night. Particularly certain kinds of sins that we just feel awkward doing in the light. I mean, I don't know, uh, but from what little bit I've heard and imagined, I suppose that, you know, certain um, establishments that have a lot of night trade are often not very well lit. You know, there's something about the anonymity of relative darkness. And he says, you know, it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. I think there's something to be learned by that. And where to draw the line on this, it might be difficult, but I think that we've got to be careful that we do not develop an enjoyment to continually be talking about sinful things. Sometimes we can get almost a vicarious enjoyment about talking about things that are evil and wicked. We want to go into great detail <laughs> in talking about those things. Now, certainly there's a time to rebuke sin. Jesus was clear about some things. There's a time to be clear and plain. But there are other times that, you know, it's really a disgrace even to talk about some kinds of things. And a Christian may have to say some things, but he won't enjoy that, those things. And he'll say as little as he has to. Because why would you even want to talk about or think about some of the absolute perversion and garbage that the world is filled with? And yet, every once in a while you see somebody who seems to just almost delight in, in reciting every detail of some wicked, evil practice. And so he says that uh, we are light the light exposes the evil, and the light of Christ shines on us and transforms us. So we need to be partakers of light and not sharers in darkness. Comments and questions on this? I think this is a big picture of what we see in John chapter 3. Yes. Uh, and why the whole focus of the light is to, is to show what is to make darkness scatter to, and when we are living in ways that we are not shouldn't be we're not letting Christ show forth from us at all 
other thoughts. Should we take a break here? How are we doing with this? Okay. Everybody okay? All right. 15 to 21.
on trying to figure out some personal will of the Lord in their lives and ignoring the will of the Lord that has been revealed. You know, I just wish I knew what the Lord's will was about this or that. Well, we know what the Lord's will is about this. How are we doing with that? I think that's the focus we need to have. Don't get drunk with wine. Good admonition. Um, but be filled with the Spirit. You know something's going to fill us. And it ought not to be wine. Because if it is, well, that'll control our minds and our thoughts and our behavior in a whole wrong way. It ought to be the Spirit of God that controls what we think and what we say and what we do. It's a whole lot better to be filled with the Spirit than be drunk with spirits. Well, that's an English pun, not a one that Paul would have recognized, but uh, but that's, that is what he's saying. And uh, how are we filled with the Spirit? Well, we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's been talking in 5.4, for example, about inappropriate speech, and in 5.6 about empty words. Here's what we're supposed to be speaking. And, 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 you know, if we really love God and we're really filled up with the Lord, we will talk about it, won't we? You know, you talk about what you're really thinking about and what you really care about. So we ought to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we ought to be, to be filled with the Spirit, we need to be singing and making melody with our heart to the Lord. And, and we need to be always giving thanks for all things. And we need to be being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There are four ways to be filled with the Spirit. Speaking, singing and making melody, giving thanks, and being subject. Those are the four, four ways of being filled with the Spirit. Being subject to one another. And that's kind of the structure of this, although verse 21 is kind of the introduction to the next section from 522 to 69 that talks about this idea of submission. Now, there's an idea about this I'm going to, I've changed my mind about. I think I've changed it in the right direction. You may disagree with me. But, but there is a, a train of thought, a strain of thought on, on verse 21 that I used to follow and that I've given up. And that is uh, people saying, well, being subject to one another is mutual submission. The wife submits to her husband, and the husband, in a sense, submits to his wife. And the children submit to their parents, and the parents, in a sense, submit to their children. And the slaves submit to their masters, and the masters, in a sense, submit to their slaves. I think that's not what he said. Now, there may be some of what was said by that was not incorrect. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think when he says, be subject to one another, it's wives be subject to their husbands. Children, be obedient to your parents. Slaves, be subject to your masters. Not that there is an implied submission on the other side. I think I think this, this term being subject to one another does not necessarily imply that. And he's clear in the text as it goes on, the submission is from one to the other, not each to the other. Well, comments and questions through 21. Is there any important distinction between psalms and hymns? Psalms and hymns. 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 Ps
a whole lot. I mean, psalms are obviously from the book of Psalms. Uh, hymns might be more focused on praise, and spiritual songs might be a little broader. Matt may know more about that than I do. <laughs> well, that makes me feel good. Anyway.
husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And a wife must see to it that she respects her husband. All right. Um, some challenging teaching in practical application, at least, for both wives and husbands. He starts with the wives. What are they to do? Yeah, submit to their husbands. Does that mean the husband is superior in worth and value to his wife? Absolutely. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah, it's, it's a role relationship. It's not a measure of worth. It's not a measure of, um, you know, well, he's better and she's worse roles and God gave the headship role to the husband. In what is the wife to submit to her husband? Everything. In everything. That is not popular in the world. That's what he says. Now, granted, you obey God rather than man. If your husband tells you to lie, you don't lie because God comes first. But with that understood, a wife is to be absolutely submissive to her husband. It's probably well advised for those of you who are not yet wives to give serious consideration to the husband you might choose to marry uh, in view of the fact that you're going to have to submit to him in everything. There would be guys easier to do that with than others. And... Uh, like it's reasonable to uh, think about that before you get married. But that's that's his, his uh, teaching. And he compares it to Jesus and the church. The church submits to Jesus in what? Better. Yeah. Absolute authority. Now, wow, if that's all we look at, um, that could make us guys feel pretty good. I can just tell her what to do. However, there are teachings for the husbands as well. What are they supposed to do? Yeah, there's always a catch. What are they supposed to do? Yes. Look, he really gives two illustrations of how they are to love their wives. As themselves is the second one. What's the first one? As Jesus loves the church. And as I recall, what did Jesus do in his love for the church? Yeah, he sacrificed himself. He died for his people. His whole purpose was to make the best out of his people. He died, he loved and died for them, to sanctify them, to cleanse them by baptism to be able to make something out of them. That was Jesus' love for his people. Now, it's 
it's interesting that again, sort of parenthetically, baptism comes up here in verse 26 as the means by which Jesus cleanses his people. And uh, there's really no other way to be cleansed by Jesus outside of the washing of the water with the word. But the point here primarily is that as husbands, our goal is to help our wives do better, to, to seek their best interests, to give ourselves to helping them grow. And we're to love our wives as our own bodies. Um, do you love your own body? Pretty much, don't we? Well, husband and wife become one flesh. They are one. When you love her, you love you. Because you are one. That's the way that ought to be. Um, what about this one? Should, is, it, is it an important biblical command to love ourselves? First Timothy, or Second Timothy 3 probably deals with that. Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and so forth. Now, that's Second Timothy 3, 2. Now, let me tell you the sermon I heard several times growing up. I actually heard one preacher preach this sermon several times. I really liked it. Well, you know how preachers are. It wasn't me. But but the preacher did a great great job. You know, he 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 said, you know, a Christian needs to love several things. And we gotta get these loves in the right order. So first you love Jesus. That's the top thing. And the next thing you love others. That's the second thing. And then he'd use a passage like this and say, the third thing is you love yourself. That's J O Y. Jesus, others, and yourself. And you have joy when you do that and when you get in the right order. Well, this passage is not commanding us to love ourselves. This passage is assuming we all do do that. And we do. We do treat ourselves pretty well most of the time. Uh, and we have a pretty great fondness for ourselves. He didn't have to command that. We already struggle with too much of that. Um... And a lot of the self-esteem stuff and so forth is rooted on misapplication of passages like this. Not that we shouldn't have some self-respect in some senses, but a lot of that stuff is certainly misapplication of Bible text and people are trying to say that the Bible is promoting that. Uh, so, uh, this is not saying to love yourself. It's saying, yeah, just like you do love yourself already, love your, your wife that way, caring for her and treating her. Comments to this point. It's interesting the way he phrases it. He who loves his wife loves herself. Yes, And I don't know if I'm very good at it yet, but the more, the, the better I get at this, the more I see it applied. How much better it is even for the husband as he learns to love his wife better. Um, and as, as that relationship grows, 
no doubt about it. Again, it goes back to the fact the husband and wife become one. So, you know, if you don't love her and she's one with you, guess what? <laughs> You're hurting yourself. And, and it really goes against this idea of rivalry or, you know, malice and resentment and things like that. We're just hurting ourselves when we let those things come in. Love her as you love yourself. I don't know who has the harder job, husbands or wives. <laughs> you know, those are pretty tough jobs both ways, aren't they? There are some times that it's not very easy to submit to husbands. And there are certainly times that it's hard to love your wife. You know? What what is the main thing that makes it hard for us to love our wives? Ourselves. Our selfishness. He, he, you know, and he says, down in verse 33, when he sums up, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The word respect is actually the same word as fear in verse 21. But it makes me think. Uh, somebody told me about this. I haven't read the book, but there's a book called Love and Respect makes this argument, I think he's right, that for the wife, the thing that's most important is to receive love. And for the husband, the thing that's most important is to receive respect. I think that's exactly right. I think that's the way God made us. He made the husband to need the wife to respect and obey. He made the wife to need the husband to really love husbands love the wives, and the wives respect and obey their husbands, then you have something that honors the Lord, that he is glorified in, in, that, in that relationship. Love and respect. And I have not read it, but it is recommended. Comments and questions? No, it's by a guy whose name I can't read on here. Uh, I think Emerson Egrix or something like that. Okay. <laughs> uh, had you ever known him, you'd never forget him. I'm sure. All right. Other comments or questions? So what do we want to do here at this point? Are we okay? Okay. Nobody needs a break? Alright. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. parents because it's right. 
and uh, also not just obey, but to honor their parents, which is a uh, command even from the Ten Commandments that's carried over here and has a promise attached that you may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. God intends for children to obey and to honor their parents. And really, honoring the parents goes beyond even the children phase. We are intended to continue to honor our parents even as we do not any longer obey them. But we still owe them the respect and the honor. Um, and those are challenging teachings uh, for us and not always the easiest thing for us to do. Now in the context of where this verse taken from, would it have been hazardous to your health if you would not Well, uh, yeah, if the law were followed. <laughs> Could have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly right. If you don't, um, duck. <laughs> and then fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, that is not the same word as parents in verse 1. I think this is specifically to the fathers. Not that mothers don't have some responsibilities, but I think this is for fathers. Don't provoke your children to anger. We could talk about that a long time. <laughs> what, are, what are some ways that fathers provoke their children to anger? Oh, no, 
he said, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to be prideful. You know, it's like no, no. <laughs> yeah, and he wonders why he has a lot of problems with his kids. But uh, you know, he was not raised well and hasn't been a Christian that long. So, what are other ways to provoke your children to anger? Unnecessary discipline. Yeah, yeah. Unnecessary, uh, unjust discipline. You know, I, I never liked this deal of, well, you know, I'll punish all of you until somebody fesses up. You know, and some things like that. That didn't seem very fair to me. John? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, my, my dad has a lot of stories of that. You know, when he was raised, he would, uh, my grandfather would, would often, like, actually time to the church when he finished eating uh, dinner. Oh, wow. Cruelty, you know, harshness. The Bible teaches discipline, absolutely. But discipline because of love, not just unnecessary harshness. Um, you know, I think, I think most people see that that's not the right thing. But sometimes in our reaction to the over-permissiveness of our society, we tend to flee to the opposite extreme. <laughs> and surely that's not the right thing. You know, favoritism would provoke children to anger if you favor one over another. Um, injustice, um, being arbitrary, humiliation, wow. Shaming your kids in front of somebody else. Now, a kid may need discipline even when they're in public, although I think if at all possible we need to try to go to somewhere where people aren't to discipline them. But, man, parents are terrible sometimes about saying things even in front of their children that are really humiliating. Like, kids have no feelings. Uh, and again, I hear that from kids quite a bit. And I, I see, yeah, I can imagine how you felt when that happened. And of course, the kids, you know, often kids don't express that. So a parent has to be sensitive about things like that. Um, but, but look at the other side of this. This is not just a negative passage, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is working for the spiritual development of the child. Something really crossed, struck me as I, I went through Proverbs recently again. Now, does Proverbs teach parents to discipline uh, corporally their children? Basically, it says, spare the rod and spoil the child. It's not a phrase from Proverbs, but that's the summary of what it says. But you know, I got to looking in Proverbs. I believe that strongly, and Kyle certainly can attest to the fact that I believe that strongly. <laughs> but for every time in Proverbs that it says to punish your children, I bet there are six or eight times that you see the pattern of teaching. I am concerned that sometimes we discipline, but we don't teach. I see so many families in which the fathers don't communicate with their children. They don't talk to them. They don't train them. They don't show them and, and, and explain to them how to live life and especially how to please God. 
and sometimes godly parents who just never taught their children, never guided them. You know, spanking them is necessary at times. And when it's necessary, we better do it. We better be consistent about it. We better be firm about it. But much more than that, we better be training them and, and speaking to them to help them grow up as God would want them to be. Comment? Doesn't leave many uh, times to be silent, does it? <laughs> Speak these words, whatever you're doing. All right. Five to nine. Slave, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service. With good will. Thank you.
Yes, I think the the basic principles. Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, we can quit our job and things like that that they couldn't have. But yeah, we sh- we should be obedient and serve whether they're looking or not, and, and so forth and so on. Uh, I think so. Yes. He was actually told to go back to his master. That was the right thing to do. Yeah, Onesimus was told to go back to flight. Philemon, exactly. against? 
absolutely. You know, we don't think about this much. I'm not even sure a lot of Christians believe this. But we are involved in something a whole lot greater than just a warfare that's going on on the physical plane on this planet. There are spiritual forces that are involved in our warfare. We are fighting not only Satan, but the demons and the evil angels and whatever. And I do not know how all of that interacts. And I understand a lot about the that world. But I believe this passage and some others are clear that that's, what, that's the way this is. Now, why does he tell us that we're fighting against these, you know, world forces of, of darkness? So, how does knowing about this enemy help us in our fight? Temptations are that you face. It's a fight. And we've got to resist. 
exist, we got to stand firm. So that's one angle of this. I think there's three basic things he says, you know, to deal with the battle. First of all, be strong and stand firm. The second one will be to put on the full armor. But do you have any comments or questions to, before we get to the full armor part? Well, think about where Paul was. Chained to perhaps a soldier with armor? If so, this would have been a convenient uh, metaphor for him to use. Uh, he knew armor. <laughs> and so he describes it. And uh, he tells us to put on the full armor in 11, take up the full armor in 13. So that means we can't leave any piece off. So look at this. Having girded your loins with the truth. You know, the truth protects us against false teaching and human philosophy we've got to really be strong and convicted in the truth of the gospel because you know what happens when I start doubting and I'm tempted maybe it's really not so bad maybe this really is okay and I fall you know the truth is a defense and then he says, uh, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what part of us would the breastplate protect? The heart. So what protects the heart? I think that means doing what's right. There's nothing that breaks down our defenses more than giving in to temptation, feeling guilty and worthless. To, you know, it's amazing. Think about what happens. Maybe this happened to you, but it happens to a lot of my friends. They'll do really well for a while, and then they fall. And you know what happens? They go into a downward binge in sin. Maybe you've faced that too. Tell you, the defense is do the right thing. Put on a breastplate of righteousness and, and 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 resist the devil. He'll flee from you. You'll resist him. You give in and it just weakens you. So the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need firm footing and stability. And it's the gospel of peace that prepares us for war. Isn't that ironic? But it does. So we got to have the gospel to have security and firm uh, footing in trial. The shield of faith. What will the shield of faith do for us? How many of them? Yes. Extinguish all God has the strength to give us the victory. Now, the shield of faith. We're going to have to have personal conviction. Borrowed faith is flimsy. We need our own faith and conviction, and that shield of faith will, will manage to, to deflect all the flaming missiles of the evil one. The, and, and then the last two pieces of armor 
as I understand it, that you put on. The helmet, and you get the sword. Well, the helmet is what? Salvation. And the sword? Yes. And it's the word that that penetrates the sword to strike back with the truth when we're tempted. Jesus kept saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. We need to know the truth, have the word of God in our heart to fight against the temptation. So, be strong and put on the full armor. Comments and questions here.
question. I don't know that I know the answer completely, but I would say, you know, that our praying is not a fleshly, carnal sort of thing. It's in connection with God's spirit. We're spiritually focused when we pray, as opposed to this world focused. Yeah. So this isn't inspired prayer. I don't. What does walk in the Spirit mean? Well, walk in a spiritual way according to the direction of the Spirit. Romans and 
And this is the one he gives the least to. So, wouldn't that mean he'd give more personal greeting? Yes. He could write to the Romans and perhaps name everybody he knew in Rome. How do you write and give personal greetings back to a church where you've been for three years and you know everybody, you know so many different people in the church? I mean, wow. You'd, you'd for sure forget somebody. Or, or not say something you should. I think that's the reason. I think it's, it's typical that Paul gives more personal greetings in those letters that he, he knows the people as well, particularly Romans. Um, so, and he wishes for them peace and love with faith and grace. And that concludes the letter. Comments and questions? I think he didn't mention anybody because he knew everybody in Ephesus. So how can he mention a few and not mention everybody? <laughs> Very good, guys. I didn't think we could get through this this quickly, but this helps us to be able to do that and helps us to be able to do it all in one session. So thank you for your attention and being willing to endure this for a uh, longer than... Uh, perhaps normal period of time. And uh, I enjoy being able to do these things. Thank you for letting me uh, uh, share with you in this. And uh, it's encouraging to be here. I've been praying for you guys a lot. And, uh, you know, I appreciate everybody showing up and doing this. Before we close, I think it would be good to have a word of prayer. Jason,